It's a privilege to be able to preach God's word to you the second week in a row. <clears throat> I hope you're blessed by it. And um, first thing we want to do is ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Father, we thank you that you are gracious to us. That you have given us truth in your word, a foundation that is sure that we can stand on throughout a midst of a world and a culture that is changing every day. You are unchangeable. We pray, God, that you would open our hearts and you would illumine our eyes to see the truth of your word, that we may be changed by your word and your word alone that exposes the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we thank you that you are powerful and mighty to save and that you are powerful and mighty to sanctify. We pray that you would encourage us through your word and that you would humble us as we apprehend your character and that you would give us hope, the hope of clinging to Christ who is who is our righteousness. We pray that you would make much of him and you would exalt him this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you please uh, turn with me to Psalm chapter 15. And Brad almost stole my thunder. I think he almost preached it for me. And this psalm I, I chose, I actually had the opportunity to, to choose the text that I would preach out of. And I chose this psalm because it had five verses um, kind of shows you where my heart was there, but it, it really came back to bite me because um, you've heard our pastor say time and time again that we need to be scathed by the word of God. Well, this psalm will scathe you, and it scathed me. And so I want to let you know that uh, I come as one who, is, who has been um, crushed by the word of God and uh, am still being crushed, and so hopefully we can be encouraged um, with what he has to say as well because his word does encourage us. So let's read through Psalm 15 and then I'll begin. This is a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. There are some realities in life that are necessary ones, but yet they're painful ones as well. It can range to the mundane things that we experience or the very uh, special and unique things that we experience. I don't think that anyone goes to visit the doctor and, um, and, and tells themselves, well, I, wow, I hope I get a shot today or hear bad news. And we don't hope for those things. We don't hope for pain. But even these mundane yet slightly painful realities can be necessary and are necessary for us to stay healthy. For example, 
There are many godly women here who have born children. They've carried a child around for nine months and then went through labor. That was a necessary experience for a new life to come into the world, but I would, I would dare you to tell them it wasn't a painful one or they didn't go through intense suffering. Now, most of us, if we've been alive for some length of time, and some of us here more than others, have gone through a measurable heartache because we've lost someone that we've dearly loved. Now, the reality of death is very painful, and it's very painful to the ones who have experienced, um, who, who are the ones who are left behind. Because we live in a fallen world, this is a reality. Each one of us will ultimately breathe our last. These kind of reality checks can be very painful. One of the classic reality checks that we have in our lives um, is when we're assessed, as when we take a test. I'm sure when I mention the word test, you're, you're probably not um, um, thinking that you like them. You might go back to your high school or college days where um, you had to take an exam, and if you didn't pass, your whole life would fall apart. Or maybe you thought of the test that you had to take at the doctor's office. Your heart sunk, and your mind was at unrest as you waited for hours, days, or maybe even weeks for the results to come back. You couldn't study for this kind of test. Nor were you concerned about what grade you would get. There's no A minus or C plus. You were hoping and praying that you pass that test. You see, tests are really meant to expose reality. They're meant to show us something true and real. But oftentimes, we'd rather not know because we're afraid of the results of these kinds of tests. We're afraid of failing. Now, whether you're being tested uh, if you know a subject well, or whether you're being tested to see if you're qualified for a certain job, or if your body is functioning as it should, it's necessary that reality be exposed so that our fitness in a certain area can be assessed. What about our spiritual lives, our lives before God? Does this need to be tested? I would venture to say that this is an area that is often overlooked by many people, and it's, it's rarely assessed, even if ever. Our lives before God are the most important aspects of who we are. We're made in His image, we're, and, and we're made for relationship with Him, but we sadly ignore, ignore finding out if we're in right relationship with Him. What if you knew someone who was suffering with radical symptoms that affected their health, but they refused to submit to any kind of assessment of their, of their symptoms in order to uh, discern the reality of the situation? You'd urge that person by starting with a test. That person needs to get diagnosed. And this is what we're in desperate need of, and this is what David is offering us in this psalm. He's offering us a spiritual test, a spiritual diagnosis. It's designed to assess our spirituality. And like many tests that expose our fitness in certain areas, it will expose our fitness to commune with God. So Psalm 15 will test our hearts. And I'm going to warn you, I'm going to give you fair warning, and let you know that this reality check might be painful. But we can't avoid it. We can't avoid knowing the truth. So in Psalm 15, 
we are called to examine our lives as we approach God so that we might be pure in heart and attitude and righteous in our conduct, resulting in in secure communion with him. Another way to put it is that this text teaches us three realities about communion with God that we are expected to apply in our lives so that we might examine whether we are spiritually fit to enter into secure communion with God. These three realities that tell us whether we are fit to have communion with God. And these three realities are the fact that we have a problem of communion with God. Number two, it's going to tell us the person who has the right to have communion with God. And number three, the promise of secure communion with God. These three realities. So number one, the problem with communion with God. Look at, look at Psalm 15, verse 1. And by the way, uh, as a footnote, where it says a psalm of David, that's actually the start of verse 1. It says that in the original text. This is a psalm of David. That's inspired. But next, David says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Well, there are many good questions in life. And oftentimes, um, the insightful person is not looking so much for an abundance of answers, but in asking the right questions. And this is what David does. He asks the right question. In fact, this is the ultimate question. Who can ascend to God's holy hill? Who can sojourn in his tent? Who can have communion with God? This is reminiscent of what Eliphaz asked Job. And albeit his, his counsel was misguided, I believe this question was pertinent. In Job 4, verse 17, he says, Can mortal man be right before God? Can man be pure before his maker? That's a really good question. And no doubt, as we have mentioned, man was made for communion with God. In fact, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But in order to understand the language of David, we must go back into the Old Testament, into the beginning of time, and look at the history of Israel. In the Garden of Eden, man was commanded to work. In Genesis 2.15, he was commanded to till and cultivate the garden and to protect it. We see that man disobeyed God by listening to the ancient serpent rather than the voice of his maker. And the result is that he was cast out of the presence of God. Genesis 3.24 says that he drove man, that's God, he drove man and uh, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. But this wasn't the end of the story, or else we could close our Bibles right there in Genesis 3, and we'd all be lost forever. But God, rich in mercy and love, according to his plan that he he ordained before the beginning of time, before he decreed before time ever began, he moved into history to establish a reconciliation between him and man, between their relationship, to redeem him from sin. In the beginning of that plan, he chose a people to reflect his character on the earth, to reflect what it looks like to be back into relationship with God. And that people was Israel. You see, we see the most important, uh, one of the most important uh, pictures of God's redemption in the Exodus, in God choosing a people and taking his people 
out of slavery and bondage in Egypt and, and uh, taking them through the Red Sea and establishing a covenant with them. And what a covenant is, is a, a formal relationship. He established another relationship with them. And he did this at Mount Sinai. But since God is holy and Israel is not, and that's the question, how can, how can an unholy person be reconciled or be in communion with a holy God? God had to make provision for them. He had to make provision to forgive their sin, and he had to tell them how to live righteously. He did this by giving them the law. If you'd like, you could turn with me to Exodus 20. I'm going to read a lengthy passage from Exodus 20. So he gives them this law, and he institutes a tabernacle full of sacrifices, and all based on his gracious choosing and the redemption of his people. So I want you to understand that God has already graciously chose and redeemed his people before he gave them the law. He's already been so gracious to them. And this is what he says in Exodus, starting in verse 1, Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all the work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or daughter or your male servant or female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is within them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet that, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, God has come to test you, that you fear him, or that, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You see, God redeemed his people and then gave them his law in that order, which reflects his holy character. He saved them from bondage and revealed to them what faithfulness to him looks like, what it looks like to be like him. He then established his presence with them by instituting the tabernacle and its system of worship. He does this at the end of Exodus. And in Exodus 40, it says that God filled the tabernacle with his presence. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 through 17, Scripture says that three times a year, your male shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booze. These are three feasts that the male Israelite was commanded to make a pilgrimage to Mount Zion, or to the tabernacle. He was supposed to go to the tabernacle during these times of feasting. And I'll finish. It says, They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. These men were supposed to go to the tabernacle and bring sacrifices unto the Lord. They were supposed to meet him there. They were sojourning to meet him in his tent. They were commanded to approach his presence. And their sacrifices was supposed to remind them of their forgiveness or their need for the forgiveness of their sins. In Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 6, we see that David moved the tabernacle to Jerusalem. This was the final resting place of the tabernacle. After David's life, this is where the temple was built. And this is, this is where Mount Moriah was where God had once commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, and instead he provided a ram for a substitute sacrifice. So this is the context by which the Israelite is going to the tent, to the tabernacle, to where God lives. This is, this is the theology that he's working under. This is the history of Israel. So put yourself in the Israelite's shoes for a moment. This is, this is the Israelite under the reign of David, under King David. You are making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You enter to the tabernacle courts with sacrifices in hand, and as you approach the manifest presence of God, you think of the history of your people. That the God that you are approaching has killed the firstborn of Egypt to redeem his people out. That he drowned Pharaoh's armies in, in the Red Sea that he manifested himself as a consuming fire, as you read in Exodus chapter 20 on Mount Sinai. The people were so afraid to approach him that he sent a plague on his people for disobeying his command and committing idolatry when they worshiped the golden calf. That in number 16, it says that fire came from the Lord and consumed 250 men because they grumbled and complained in Korah's rebellion. And the list goes on in your head. Your God is not a God to be trifled with. When Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 came into his tabernacle with unauthorized fire, he burned them up. Fire came out of heaven and they were consumed and they died. So as you think about this, and you've had a long journey I went to Oregon a couple weeks ago, and it took 16 hours to get there, and that was quite a journey. And we're talking about a long journey, day's journey, maybe even week's journey to Jerusalem to make this pilgrimage that they would make three times a year. It's been a long time, and they finally made it. So as you have finally made it to the tabernacle's entrance, you've ascended the holy hill, the Levitical priests who's guarding the gate of the entrance, asks you a question. In fact, he asks a question in a rhetorical fashion. He's speaking to the Lord. Oh, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? 
And as you hear his rhetorical question, you wait for the answer. And here's the first answer. He says in Psalm 15, verse 2, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Already, you feel like turning around and going home because that's not you. This presents a big, big problem concerning your communion with God and my communion with God. You realize after his first answer that you've already failed the test. You can't enter God's presence. You've made the trek all the way to Jerusalem, and it would be futile to turn back now, but you continue to listen. Might as well hear him out, right? And he, like David, gives you the rest of the test to see if you are worthy enough to have fellowship with God. So let's look at this person. Who is this person that can enter the courts of the Lord, that can sojourn like like this Israelite has sojourned to his tent and ascended his holy hill. Who can do this? Well, let's look at it. Point number two. The person who has the right to communion with God. And you're going to see this in verses two all the way to verse five. The person who has the right to commune with God. And I'm going to give you some different qualifications, uh, different characteristics that this person has, different qualities. But the first one is that he's perfect in heart. And, this, and, and when I look through the text, verse 2 says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. That last one, he speaks truth in his heart, encompasses the other two. That he does what is right and he walks blamelessly. And the, first, the, the first one, this is how he's perfect in heart. How, how does this happen is that he's blameless. That's how it happens. The word that's used here for blamelessly, it means perfect. And it has to do with your integrity. It's used when describing the sheep uh, or the sacrifices that had to be brought unto the Lord. They had to be free of blemish. They had to be blameless. They had to be completely intact. And in Leviticus 22, we read, When anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering from the herd of the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. That's Leviticus 22, verse 21. This is the same word that is used to speak about the perfection of God's law in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's reflective of God's character, and we're responsible to emulate God's character. In Leviticus 19, 2, the writer says, Speak to all the congregation. Moses says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for, the, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And Jesus reflects this same Old Testament theology. You there must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. We are to walk in this way, if you look at the text. He who walks perfectly, he who walks blamelessly, we are to walk this way in order to have communion with God. God is the standard. We are not the standard. Your best friend is not the standard. God is the standard. It's like following a father's footsteps on a snowy day in the storm, in a snowstorm. In order to get back home, you have to plod along trying to make your stride and your gait as fast as his, or your gait as fast as his, and your stride as as big as his, so that you won't lose him. 
That's a picture of what it means to, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We must strive to be as holy in our character as he is holy. Not only this, but our conduct must be righteous. So our conduct, must be, um, we must walk blamelessly, and we must do righteousness, is what the psalm says. This means that the person who is wholly concerned, this person is wholly concerned with doing the will of God. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, will enter God's presence, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And it's encouraging to know that in John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's righteous to believe in Christ, and yet that's been granted to us by the Father to, to exercise faith in him. When you think about what decisions to make in your life, what's your default? Is it to go to the word of God and say, what is your will? What have you commanded me to do? What is the right thing to do according to you, Lord, in this situation? What would God have me do is what we should ask. And both of these points, as I pointed out earlier, reflect the person who is pure in heart. That is, he speaks truth in his heart. Do we speak the truth in our hearts? Do we speak in our heart what corresponds to reality as God is revealed in his word? This is the heart of a person who can approach God, someone who speaks truth in his heart. Because the Lord doesn't look at outward appearance, he looks upon the heart. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, talking about who would be the next king. Or David, he's talking about David. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Actually, he's talking about Saul. I'm sorry about that. He didn't reject David. Rewind that. Take that out. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his nature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The real test of our, our fitness of, of our ability to approach God does not come from someone else's assessment of our character because they see the outward appearance. It doesn't come from someone who says, I think you're worthy of, doing, uh, of approaching. You're a good guy. You're a good woman. But it comes from our conscience before the Lord. And that's what the writer is, that's what David is trying to tell us. It's our conscience that is the gatekeeper to the tabernacle. We're asking ourselves this question, and God is omniscient, and he knows our hearts, and he knows its attitudes, and he bears witness to our conscience where we have fallen short when we are informed by his word. So whether you admit it or not, <clears throat> your conscience does bear witness in your heart whether or not you are holding on to sin that does not please God. God is looking for worshipers who, like Jesus said in John 4, worship him in spirit and in truth. The condition of your heart really does matter. Your heart attitudes matter. And the conversation that you're having with it right now is a very important one. Are you a person who speaks truth in your heart before the Lord, or do you approach him with pretense in your heart? You can do that with others, and they may not know, but God knows. 
God knows whether you come to him in a pretentious manner. We know in life that there's no true relationship that is based on pretense or pretext or, or, um, or false information. It's based on truth, and that's the same with our relationship with God. It's based on truth. See, many in America have professed to know the Lord, and they've made the pilgrimage to church on Sunday morning, like we have today, but they do not exhibit the blameless walk that the psalmist here is speaking of. They do not exhibit uh, truth in their heart that the psalmist is speaking of, or they don't do righteousness. They suppress the alarm of their conscience, screaming in their heart that they are in bondage to the sin that God hates. And beloved, let's not do that this morning. Let's not suppress that alarm. Let's speak the truth in our hearts about what it is. Confess it. I fear that this person does not know God if they continue this way and has never been converted. Did you do that on your way to church this morning? Did you speak the truth in your heart this morning? Or did you exhibit righteous conduct or walk blamelessly? Did you argue with your wife or kids? Maybe you did it last week. I've done it before. Not above that. Did you give no thought to your heart before you came in? Did you make peace before you came in? Before you sat under the preaching of God's word? Because remember, our God is a consuming fire. Let's not take that lightly. Let's not take him lightly. So we must ask ourselves, if our walk is blameless and righteous, and whether our hearts are pure as we approach God, and this person, this person has the right to commune with God. Well, let's look at the next qualification for the person who has the right to commune with God. Let's look at Psalm 15, verse 3. And this person who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. He is righteous in his relationships. He is righteous in his relationships. The person who has the right to commune with God speaks the truth in his heart, and he's righteous in his relationships. Number one, he doesn't slander. This has to do with destroying the reputation of another or gossiping. This is the same thing. It is false witness about the character of another who is not even there to defend themselves. Even if there is some truth to the claim, and by the way, when there's half-truths kind of lumped in there, that's the juiciest kind of gossip. What is your motive for telling someone? What is your motive for sharing about the character of another with someone? It's not always wrong, but what's your motive? That's, that's, the, that's the heart of the issue. That's the key. Are you wanting to exalt yourself above the other person because you would never do what that person did, right? We can do this in subtle ways, maybe even through prayer requests that we might throw out during prayer time. This person, this person really needs prayer, not like me. That would be slander. And we can do this in subtle ways, but really, we must be diligent to search our hearts and stop them from speaking ill against a brother or sister in Christ. And this starts in the heart, thinking ill about another brother and sister in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, Paul tells us, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. 
Now, the person uh, who can approach God is righteous in his relationships because he does not cause others pain. So we looked at, he, in verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue, and he does no evil to his neighbor. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do you see the corollary to that? The one who does not do evil to his neighbor, but in Leviticus 19, the, the other side of that is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And God says, I am the Lord. Now, this kind of hurt is not talking about Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, which is a very familiar verse to us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's not talking about that kind of hurt. That's a noble thing to do. This is talking about the profuse kisses of an enemy or, or the, um, the evil done because of those kisses. The person who is qualified to approach God loves his enemies and seeks their good, doesn't seek their harm, doesn't seek their evil. Number three, the, the person who has the right to commune with God and he's righteous in his relationships because he does not personally attack others. We read this at the end of verse 3. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, reproach is not really used in common language these days. But what it really is is a cutting taunt. That's what the language here is talking about. It's a sharp and caustic um, taunt. There's a cutting element to it in, in the Hebrew word. He does not insult or mock his friends, the person who can approach God. Now, can we do this? I don't think sometimes we intentionally try to, to mock someone or taunt them or insult them, but when we get angry, can we do this? Can it slip out? Does, does our heart, is our heart reflected in our words that way? And Jesus would say, yes, out of the heart the mouth speaks. So, we can do this. We can make biting remarks to loved ones. Have you ever been so sarcastic that it, you're trying to hurt somebody? That's what this is talking about, being harsh. Colossians 3.19 tells husbands to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. This person does not take a reproach against a close friend. No closer friend than your wife. Now let's look at the next qualification for the person who has the right to have communion with God. He is righteous in discerning or distinguishing between the godly and the ungodly. Let's look at the text. Verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He's righteous in his discernment and distinguishes between ungodliness and godliness and honors the latter. He honors godliness. So let's be clear. This is not telling us not to be friends with someone who's not, who's not a believer or not to, not to have a relationship with them. So Paul tells the Corinthians this in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So anyone who tells you that the Bible says, or God doesn't want us to judge, take him to this text. It's talking about judgment. We're called to discern. That's what it's talking about. But the text is, is not telling us to flee the world. In fact, in John 17, 15, Jesus prayed to the Father, said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And in John 15, verse 19, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And this is reflected again in 1 John. That there's, a, there's a sharp distinction between those who know God and those who do not know God. And those who know God are in the church and a part of the body of Christ, and those who don't know God are of the world. But we're called to make that dis distinguishing, uh, we're, we're called to distinguish between the two, to, make dis to discern between the two. And, and I think we, we do this in a personal way, but I don't think we do this when it comes to our culture. At least I know I'm guilty of not doing this when it comes to our culture. Are we enthralled with the cult of celebrity? Do you love and honor people who are despised in the Lord's eyes? And that's what this text is saying. Uh, if you look, at, look again, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. A, a reprobate, that's the vile person, a rejected person. In, in the original language, it's a participle. It means the rejected one. The rejected one, in his eyes, is to be despised or thought of as despicable. Do you honor the little old lady who is faithful to the Lord and blameless in her character, who prays for the kingdom of God and, and prays for you daily, do you honor her more than you honor the celebrity that you like or your hero in, in you know, the latest movie? Do you honor her more? Do you think about her more? Do you think much of her? Is she an excellent one that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 16.3? Is she a noble one of God? That's what we're called to do is distinguish between those two. We're called to distinguish between the rejected one, which is usually in our culture one who is famous, like maybe the pop star or the TV series hero. They do things that God hates, and we exalt them. One commentator puts it this way, those who are righteous must have true spiritual discernment to determine who is worthy of honor, and they must look beyond the flow of popularity to see who are truly devout. A vile person is despised in this person's eyes. He is or he has the right to commune with God. Let's look at uh, the last qualifications for the person who has the right to commune with God. This is found in uh, the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. So, so far we've seen that the blameless person who does righteousness and speaks truth in his heart can commune with God, who doesn't gossip with his tongue, or do, do, do uh, cause pain to his neighbor or, or, um, or insult his friends or mock his friends. We see that he can distinguish between those who 
are beloved of God and those who are rejected of God. And he loves those who are beloved of God. And we see here that he is loyal to his commitments. The end of verse 4, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He is loyal to his commitments. Let's read the rest of it. He swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So these two are going to be lumped into one, one point. He is loyal in his commitments, and he uses his money to help others. This is very practical. The person who's going to approach a God, they're very focused on not just the heart, but the manifestation of the heart in that person's behavior, even to the point that, that it's very important that the psalmist address how he uses his money. So literally, when we talk about someone who swears to his own hurt, it means he swears to his own pain. He is loyal to his word and committed to keeping his word to such a degree that, it, that he's willing to lose something. Even if it's costly or inconvenient to him, he's willing to lose something. Now, what are we willing to lose or what are we willing to suffer loss for for the sake of keeping our word? Really, this really tests our hearts. And if you think about the covenant of marriage as an illustration, you gave your word to your spouse. Are you willing to sacrifice to keep it? Are you willing to sacrifice on a daily basis to keep it? Are you willing for husbands to, to love your wife as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? Wives, are you willing to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord? Are you willing to keep your word on a daily basis? Are you willing to keep your commitments that you make to your children or to your employer or to one another here in the body of Christ? But another thing, not only is he loyal to his commitments, he does not put out his money at interest. And now this can be extended. That's pretty clear that he doesn't lend his money with a high interest rate. And the word uh, in the Hebrew means with a bite. He doesn't lend out his money with a bite. He's not trying to cause harm to his neighbor by a 50% interest rate, which would have been common in those days. And that sounds very high. But this can be extended to mean that the person gives without expecting something in return. Do you give without the expectation of some tribute or some honor that someone must extend to you because you've been generous? Do we in our hearts give that way? Do we want something back even if it's not tangible money? It's still interest. It's with some expectation. That is lending with interest in a practical way. Do you love others with the expectation to receive from them? That's lending with interest. Now next he talks about taking a bribe. Who doesn't lend his money at interest with a bite and he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent at the end of uh, right in the middle of verse 5. And this, this means that he's, he's not partial toward other people. He, he desires justice. He wants, their, he wants justice for the oppressed, justice for the poor, justice for the innocent. This is uh, akin to what James writes about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. By this time, at the end, almost at the end of this psalm, if we're not wrecked and crushed, then one of two things is occurring. And by the way, throughout the whole time I was preaching, I'm thinking of things that I have unfinished, maybe commitments that I have not fulfilled. They're there. They're there in all of us. And our desire should be to fulfill those things. But by this time, if we're not wrecked, if we haven't in our conscience examined ourselves and took the test, then one of two things is happening. We're either hard of heart or we're deceiving ourselves. We're making excuses. So this moves us to point three. So by this time, we've realized that no one can approach God in communion with him. But there's a promise here in verse, uh, verse 5c, the end of verse 5. The promise of secure communion with God. And that's the third point. Secure communion with God. He who does these things shall never be moved. Shall never be moved within fellowship with God. Shall never be moved in his life. Jesus said in John 15, 10 through 11, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and, you, and that your joy may be made full. With reference to his word in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, He who builds his life on the rock, the wind and the waves shall crash against it, and it won't come tumbling down. One commentator says, This meditation draws to a conclusion. Those who live this way down to these kinds of details, will not only abide with the Lord, but will also be secure in the Lord. The verb to be moved, shaken, it's passive. That person will not be moved by anything else, by a mover. The righteous will not be shaken in their faith if they live this way, for they will abide in the presence of the Lord and go from strength to strength. So not only is it a standard because it's reflective of God's character, but it's also the tutor. It also teaches us how to live. So if you have completely obeyed these qualifications, if you're the kind of person who can approach God according to this text, then please stand. And look around. I'm the only one standing. I don't think I want to stand. If you're like me, then this text has wrecked you and crushed you. But not because you're like me, but because that's what the text was designed to do. It was designed to crush people who were coming to commune with the Lord. The Israelite was meant to understand that his true state before a righteous and holy God who required his worshipers to be pure in heart in order to approach him was not good. He was meant to be crushed to the point that he remembered why he had brought those sacrifices in the first place. Because he needed to secure forgiveness of his sins. He needed to bring lambs without blemish while ascending this holy hill. 
to enter God's dwelling place. And we are meant to be crushed as well as we approach God in worship in his holy house. And in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul says that you are God's temple. You're the place where God dwells. And this has only come about because of the faithful one. If there's anyone who has fulfilled these details to the full, it is the faithful one. He is the one who has done these things. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The one who has righteously fulfilled the commandment was crushed by the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for our sake he, might, he made him sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is what truly qualifies us to approach the throne of God, which, by the way, that's what the tabernacle was. The ark in the middle of the Holy of Holies was God's footstool, the, the footstool of his throne as he was seated on the cherubim that were above the ark. That is what qualifies us to approach that presence, that consuming fire on Mount Sinai. That is what secures our unending fellowship with God, is that Jesus Christ was blameless, that he always walked blamelessly, he always walked righteously, he always spoke the truth in his heart. He never did a wrong to his neighbor or, did, or had ill will toward his neighbor, but he loved his neighbor as himself. He didn't lend any money out at interest. He didn't seek anything in return from anybody, but gave of himself. And he never slurred his neighbor or his close friend or slandered. He has done all these things. And this is good news for the crushed soul. That Christ was crushed for us, that we might be reconciled to God. So now we can say with the author... Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help, grace to help in a time of need. And that's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And again, I want to underscore that just because we cannot perf perfectly fulfill this law, that doesn't mean that we are not subject to the law. The, the very... The very um, fact that we are subject to the law tells us of our need and as the writer of Galatians Paul tells us that the law is the tutor that leads us to Christ that we need a righteousness that is not our own an alien righteousness a righteousness that doesn't come from ourselves so that Paul can write because this righteousness came by grace and it's effective in the heart of the believer the Jew or the Israelite who was heading up the holy hill to meet God in his tent was recalling the grace of God in the life of the people of Israel and that how God had made covenant with them and saying, Lord, help me be righteous to enter your presence. It was by grace. So Paul tells us in Titus 2, verse 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this is what the grace of God does, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, his own people, 
who are zealous for good works. The grace of God is effective. It works. It does something. It makes you look more like Christ. This test of David's was never meant to save us. The law of God does not save us. It was not given to save. Christ was given to save, to fulfill the law, to die on the cross, to be the substitute for our sin, appease the wrath of God that was meant for us because we grumble and complain and we don't fulfill these things. And then he was raised to life on the, new, on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures. And that's why we worship today on Sunday, the Lord's day, the day that he rose from the grave. This text is more than just a shot in the arm. It's a diagnosis that we need the Savior, that we need to follow his holy steps in order to enjoy abiding and secure fellowship with God. It was meant to show us our need for God's grace and motivate us to live righteous lives because he has graciously redeemed us and invited us to immovable fellowship with him in his tent on his holy hill. And as we celebrate today, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a time of examination, a time for us to be tested by the word of God and to be found wanting because we are. We need, we need righteousness. It's a time for us to examine our lives and to speak truth in our heart toward the Lord before we proclaim that we have partaken in his death, that we're in covenant with him. And so as we do that, let's examine ourselves. Let's examine if we fulfilled these things. And if we have not, let's come to him with transparent hearts that plead for his mercy and his grace and look at his word and know that we have found it that has been given to us. It's been revealed that it is in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are made complete in him because of his work. So let's do that as we approach the Lord's Supper. And let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you that you attend um, the proclamation of your word, that your word does not come, void, uh, come back void, but does what you have intended it to do. You know, Father, I pray that y- you, would, you would have it do its work in our life as we go about our day and our week, and that you would help us to, um, to look to Psalm 15 to diagnose ourselves and to be encouraged that you give grace to those who come to your tent humbly. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.